we could turn to the letter to the Ephesians this morning. <clears throat> and chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. This is an amazing letter. This letter to the Ephesians, I think most of you know that it was written when the Apostle Paul was in his last stage of his journey. It was written either in his final imprisonment or his almost final imprisonment. Certainly it was in the last years of his life and toward the fulfillment of his ministry. And there are many who believe that this letter was not written to a particular church because some of the very old and ancient manuscripts do not say in chapter 1 and verse 1 to the saints that are at Ephesus, but there is a blank left in the manuscript which would suggest that uh, a name of various places was filled in. It was a kind of circular letter to a number of uh, churches. That is one suggestion that has been made. Certainly, we can be quite sure that what is contained in this Ephesian letter was not just meant uh, for the church at Ephesus. It is... Um, uh, in many, many ways, the high water mark of the Bible. No one has ever exhausted this Ephesian letter. And um, uh, if you think that that is not true, I, I, I suggest that you read it again, and you read it not only in this version, but in some of the modern uh, colloquial in English versions. You'll never come to the end of the Ephesian letter. There are unfathomable depths in this letter. But it seems to me that this verse 1 of chapter 4 is the key to it all. Walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. I think you all know that the Apostle Paul tends in many of his letters to divide what he says, what he writes, into two. And the first part, he deals with the facts, with the truth. And then he applies it all to practical, everyday life, to our routine living, if you like. And indeed, we could say that that is the permanent message that comes from all the Apostle Paul's letters. Truth was never, ever meant to remain in the sphere of theory. Oh, this, I think, is the bugbear of evangelicalism, that we have so much in the sphere of theory. We sing about it. We talk about it. We read about it. We pray about it. And it is an extraordinary fact that the greatest amongst us can have contradictions 
right at the very heart of our being to what we believe and profess. Sometimes we have such a blind spot that we can put everyone else right when in our own lives there is a contradiction so blatant that it is apparent to everyone else. It is this that the Apostle Paul unfailingly puts his finger upon. In all his letters, he brings it down to the most mundane things, to the most routine things, and never ever think that mundane and routine things are not important. For we have a little saying, don't we, in English, a straw can tell which way the wind is blowing. And there is nothing more true than that. I say it to myself, as well as to you. Those mundane routine things of church life, of personal life, of family life, of work life, business life, professional life, whatever it is, those are the very things that give the game away. Now you must take note that in a letter as tremendous as the Ephesian letter, no less than half of it is bound up with the routine, mundane, practical, workaday life. And the Apostle Paul ties it down to the most extraordinary thing. All these tremendous truths, these tremendous, this tremendous revelation, so tremendous that he has to get on his knees and say, Lord, give them a, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of yourself, the eyes of their heart. Let, let them be enlightened that they might know these things. This is something so tremendous that the human intellect can't take it. It can't just uh, make it a subject to study and master this. He gets on his knees, as it were, before he's even through a, a, a little of the first part of his letter. And he's praying for them all, that they might have this spirit of wisdom and revelation. But you mark that over half of this letter, from chapter 4 to chapter 6, over half of it is to do with the practical application of it. So we can say very simply that in the first three chapters we have our calling. And in the last three chapters we could say, we could entitle it, Walk Worthily of the Calling. Now it's one thing to be called, it's another thing to walk worthily of it. God in his infinite grace calls us all and his gifts and calling he never repents of. Isn't that wonderful? We can be the most rotten, the most hopeless, the most up and down Christian, but the Lord never repents of his calling. He never says, I washed my hands 
They've gone up and down so much that it's nearly made me feel dizzy. I'm finished with them. I turn away from them. No, he never repents of it. His calling is eternal. And once he's called us, he never goes back. It's the second part which is so vital. Walk well. Now, there are just a few lessons we can only just uh, go through these chapters. But let's just look uh, at them. First of all, one little lesson which covers the whole letter and which I think has a message for every single one of us. We find it in chapter 3, verse 1. For this, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, in behalf of you Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord beseech you to walk worthily. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote this tremendous letter, he was a physical prisoner. He was chained to a guard, so that as this tremendous revelation was given and as it was written down, there was this dear brother with a great chain. And there, just a yard away, an uncouth Gentile soldier. Isn't it amazing? That soldier heard everything, no matter what it was. Heard every word of it. Couldn't help it. When the Apostle Paul said, now we'll pray, I don't know what the guard did. Whatever Paul did, the guard had to do. You understand that? No matter what it was, the most intimate things of life, he was never unchanged. He was always there. He was a prisoner. Now, wouldn't you have thought that that would have finished the man's ministry? Wouldn't you have thought such limitation, such restriction, why we would say it is the limitation of circumstances? We would say it is the restriction of a situation which is satanic in its very nature. We would have said, this is the end of the Apostle Paul. No more conferences. No more conventions. No more evangelistic campaigns. No more churches to be founded or planted or born. However you like to look at it. We would have said, this is the end of the Apostle Paul. This is the end. We must all gather together and pray for him, that this man be released from this chain. I mean, even if they lock him up in a house, put him under house arrest, to put him at the end of a chain, this is quite wrong. You remember once Paul wrote in another letter at the same time, don't be ashamed of my chain. What a thing to have to put in a letter that has become scripture. Don't be ashamed of my chain. Have you got a chain? I think we've all got chains. And you know, our chains are the most, um, the most marvellous excuse. We all have chains which we say, well, of course, such and such. My chain. If I were delivered from that chain, I would have a marvellous ministry. If I was delivered from those circumstances, from that situation, from that environment, from that person, why, I can imagine now and again the Apostle Paul must have thought, 
I wish I'd got a Christian soldier on the end of this chain. These uncouth, ungodly men. That has to be with me not only when I'm awake but when I'm asleep. So that every word I pray is heard by these ungodly ears. Well, have you got a chain? And on the end of the chain, is there someone else? And you say, this is the end of the ministry. This is the end of, uh, uh, of your usefulness. This is the end of spiritual values. This means restriction. This means limitation. This means crippling of God's purpose in my life. My friend, you're quite, quite wrong. Now, don't you mistake, there are some things that are the works of Satan which need removing. And we must never accept anything which is a work of Satan. But let us also remember there are messengers of Satan that are also given to us in the wisdom of God. Don't let us run away from them. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of the Caesar... No. Does he say for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner uh, of the Romans? No. He says for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord. Isn't that marvelous? He says, my sphere isn't this chain. My sphere isn't just being on an end of a chain. Uh, 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 to which is fixed a Roman soldier, an uncouth, ungodly, unsaved Gentile, my sphere of imprisonment is the Lord. Chained I am, but I can reach the ends of the earth and the ends of time by the Lord's ministry. Did the Apostle Paul have any idea that his faith, his faith, which enabled him to see the whole thing as in the Lord. Did he ever realize that his ministry was to leap not only over the whole of the Roman Empire, but right to the end of time? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, listen, you may have such circumstances if once you can be sure that the Lord is in this thing, in your circumstances, if this is the sovereignty of God that is round about your environment, your circumstances, whatever they are, my dear friend, forget the environment, forget the circumstances and say, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord. And you'll know a freedom which is absolutely glorious. Paul was the most free man in the Roman Empire. And here you've got it in this letter. He soars into heights. He goes down to the depths. How can a man do that who's on a chain? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Well, now, what have we got in this letter? In the first three chapters, we have really the most wonderful uh, uh, interpretation, exposition, however you like to put it, of our calling. What is our calling? Why the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, goes back into eternity past, and he reaches on into eternity to come, and he says, here are, here are we in the center of it all. 
from eternity past to eternity future, this great calling of God has come to us. Listen, chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right back in eternity past, there's the Apostle Paul dictating at the end of his chain. There's the old guard listening. Can't understand what he's talking about. And certainly why the two of them are getting quite so excited. And the Apostle Paul is saying, put it down, put it down. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think of that. Think of it. Why those dear people, they think they, they made a decision for Christ. They think it all started on the day they were converted, and therefore they're a bit wobbly. See, They think, has the Lord accepted me? Has he not? Has he? Has he not? Why, you tell them, they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. How wonderful. Listen that we should be holy and without spot, without blemish before him in love. Right back into eternity past. Now he reaches right out into eternity future. Listen to this. Verse 13. In whom, ye, or, in whom having also believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, unto the praise of his glory. Eternity future. Do you realize what the Holy Spirit has done to you? The Holy Spirit has sealed you. God has put a stamp on you by the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Stamped, branded. You're sealed. As God looks upon us, he either sees a seal or he doesn't. Everyone who's sealed is a child of God. In their forehead. He sees it. It's the spiritual mark of the Lamb, sealed with the Holy Spirit. What for? Well, you see, it is the earnest. The word in your, your very modern English version, you see, is deposit. You know, when you go into a shop and you see a, 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 a something you like, you say, oh, I haven't got the money with me at present. You haven't got a, a, a bank uh, uh, a book, checkbook or anything. You don't have anything in the bank. You've got it all at home in a little cash box. So you say, or under the floorboard somewhere. You know the kind of thing. So you say, I'm sorry, I haven't got the, 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 the money. I've got to go home. Oh, do you think, you say, do you think it'll be here when I come back? And the uh, thing, if he's a good salesman, says, um, no, I don't think so. Um, these are going very quickly today. Well, could I pay a deposit, you say? Uh, yes. Have you got, uh, shall we say, two, three pounds? Could you put that down? Yes, I've got that. All right. You put down your three pounds, and that good, those goods are legally yours. You paid the deposit. Now you're going to go away, and you're going to come back with the rest of the money, whatever it is, and then you're going to get the whole thing. Do you know what the Lord's done with us? He's given us the earnest of our inheritance. He's put the deposit down. The deposit, think of it, the deposit is the Holy Spirit. 
He's given us the earnest, you see. That's the deposit. So if it's so glorious at times to be a child of God, if sometimes we're lifted into a heaven itself, sometimes into the third heaven, and we, oh, we're just beyond ourselves, just think what it's going to be. This is only the deposit. Well, don't all look so miserable. It's only the deposit. Some people seem to think that we should have the whole lot now. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. We groan in this body now. There's much that comes back to us again and again to remind us that we've only got the deposit. We are only engaged. The marriage hasn't taken place. It's to come. And if it can be as that old hymn, that old glory, if it can be so marvellous here, what will it be when we're there? Well, the Apostle Paul just so gets so excited about all this. He says in verse 10, uh, verse 9, making known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him unto a dispensation of the fullness of time. Do you understand anything of that? Words afterwards, phrase after phrase, tumbles out, listen, to sum up all things in Christ, things which are in heaven and things upon the earth. In him, I say, in whom ye were made a heritage. Now, isn't that just simply marvellous? Eternity to eternity. The, whole, the key to the whole thing is that everything's to be summed up in him. And you, can your life be summed up in him? That's the battle, isn't it? Are the things that you're ashamed of, things that you know very well, don't add up to Christ? Things that he can't be head on? They don't belong to his kingdom. You understand? How wonderful it all is. Well, even if you don't get excited about it, the Apostle Paul gets that excited that he says, look here, we must stop. And the guard looks a little perplexed, confused. And the Apostle Paul says to the man dictating, come on, we're going to have a word of prayer. Down they both get, and then they pray. Listen to the prayer. Lord, he says, don't let this all stay in the realm of theory. Don't let it be material for sermons. Don't let it just be theology, Lord. Don't let it just be a kind of uh, a sermon textbook. Lord, he says, make it real in them. Give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation they may know. And then he says three things that they might know. They might know the hope of his calling. That's what we get. And secondly, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. That's what he gets. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, the power. How we can get the hope of our calling, finally. And how we can become his inheritance. It's a great thing when a child of God goes over from what he gets to what the Lord can get. How selfish we all are. How we judge everything by what we get. And the Apostle Paul is, well, the Holy Spirit really it is, through the Apostle Paul is the great psychologist. No, he knows it's no good talking about what God gets first. So he says first that they might know what is the hope of his, call, of his calling. What you are going to get. 
What is the hope of this calling, the glory of it, the fullness of it, the joy of it, the life of it, everything that you are going to get? He dangles it almost like a carrot before us. And then he says, when you're fully excited spiritually about this matter, so that you say, Lord, I must go on, then, Lord, let them know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in them. They're going to inherit but he's going to inherit. But you know, it's no point at all unless they know the power, the exceeding greatness of his power. Otherwise, it'll all be theory. Oh, we could go on and we could go on. Look, in the second chapter, what he says, he tells us how, what the Lord has done. He says you were dead. All of you were dead. But he raised you with Christ. And he seated you with Christ. And now you're to walk in works of all prepared. How simple it all is. He says, don't think that all this from eternity to eternity is just a wonderful kind of fairy tale. He's done it. When Christ was raised, he raised you. When Christ sat down at the right hand of God, you sat down. And now he says, you can walk in works of all prepared. Not in a terrible side twittering self-conscious way, shall I, shall I not, shall I, shall I not, shall I, shall I not, but quite gloriously, spontaneously, you're doing things and you only find out afterwards their works are prepared. The Christian life isn't one of these neurotic states where all the time you say, shall I, shall I not, shall I, shall I not, shall I? Spiritual neurosis? No. It's a human release. You just go forward in faith. And then you find out afterwards you're in works of all prepared. Now, I'm not saying you don't pray. I'm not saying there's not a battle at times. There's not perplexity at times. But I am saying this, that you don't get into such a state that you become a spiritual neurotic. You're walking in works of all prepared, not hopping. You're walking. There's something, there's a rhythm in walking. There's something beautiful about a good walker. It's a spontaneous rhythm. You walk. And then what does he say? He says, just you remember all of you, you Gentiles. Just you remember that you're no longer Gentile. And that you Jews, you're no longer Jews. This impossible gulf, this barrier, this this fixed wall between you, this iron curtain, it's gone. And you're one. In him, you are the temple that God is building, that it might be his home forever. Now, that's all in these first three chapters. Then he starts, uh, chapter three, he starts on the practical side. You see, he says, for this cause, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, uh, uh, on behalf of you Gentiles. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> He says, uh, again, this being a prisoner on this chain with the old guard there, listening to it all, he says, uh, it's all for you. I'm not just full of self-pity saying, poor, poor, I'm having a terrible time, everyone. Do pray for me. He says, it's all for you. And then just like the Apostle Paul, who I think would have been the most exasperating 
brother, if he'd been here uh, with us, especially for some more than others, um, he, he, never, he never follows through a thing. He stops all the time. He's either jumping up and uh, proclaiming something or he's on his knees praying, or uh, the next minute when he's just going through, he stops, and here we get a great parenthesis, you see. He goes right the way back over the whole thing, and he, talk, he talks about this mystery. This mystery. Do you know what the mystery is? The mystery. He says, now listen, the key to all that I've been saying is what I call the mystery of Christ. What is this mystery of Christ? Well, it is that you're all in him. And that you're his bride, if you like. You're his temple. You're his home. You're his body. You're his dwelling place. It's a mystery, he says. But it's been revealed to us. It's been kept secret. Oh, he says. Well, if you read through that third chapter, you'll find out all about it. He gets again very, very excited. And then, at the end of it, he prays. And then we have his second prayer. I think it's, it's like a, a mounting ladder. Listen to it all. Here it is. Uh, this is what he prays. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the first thing. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith to the end that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. What an escalation. What an escalation. First, that you may be strengthened in the inward man. Secondly, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Thirdly, that you may be being rooted and grounded in this way. That's only the beginning, by uh, Think of the back. Some of us have a lifetime over this. Just being rooted and grounded. Apostle Paul says that's nothing. Kindergarten. Kindergarten. Oh. All of you should be beyond that now. Strengthening the inward man who's been knocked down this week. That's too bad. That's all kindergarten stuff. Fancy living to when you're near 80. I'm still not rooted and grounded. Why, my goodness me, the Spirit of God wants to carry you right out beyond that. Says the Apostle Paul. Strengthening the inward man, Christ may dwell in your heart, that ye being rooted and grounded may be strong to apprehend. Here it is, the height and depths and breadth and lengths, and to know the love of Christ. Oh, you say, but I know it. No, says the Apostle Paul, you don't. You know the shallows. You don't know it. You need to be enraptured. You need to be ravished. You need to be simply captivated. But you can't. For the Lord never commits himself till you're rooted and grounded. Till you've settled it in your heart. None of this talk, shall I go back? Shall I not? Shall I go back? Shall I go not? Shall, shall I not? None of that. The Lord will never ravish you on that line. Until you're settled, where you die, I die. Where you go, I go. Your people, my people. Your country, my country. Until you go like that with the Lord, the Lord says, right, I've got you. Now we'll launch out. And here it is. Just listen to it. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. 
not to be known through the intellect, but to be known in the spirit. Fill unto all the fullness of God. Why, that's almost blasphemous. Out into an ocean. Lost in him. Some people are so bothered about being filled with him, but the Apostle Paul is bothered about you being lost in him. Well, he says a bit later, the practical size is be filled with the Spirit. But he says, now, don't you get the wrong idea. That's, again, only kindergarten. How far we are, where are we all? I don't think we've started in the kindergarten, have we? We're still in mother's arms. But the Apostle Paul says, that's a, I want you to be lost. But now, see, all the, I'm afraid we're lost too, the time's gone. <laughs> <clears throat> and he ends that with now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly. How gracious of God, just to put that after all this. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Think of that. Well, then after that, the Apostle Paul starts to take the whole lot up and he brings all this marvellous revelation and he says the whole thing's got to be outworked. And if it isn't outworked, it doesn't mean a thing. All very well for you to know about this. Why? He goes, look at it. He talks about the church first. Being in the church. Then he goes on to personal life. He says, let him that stole steal the milk. Oh, he would say, oh, now, now, now. Paul. We don't need to be told something like that. Why, it's rather embarrassing. Surely we all take that for granted. No, says the Apostle Paul, don't you take anything for granted knowing your depraved condition. Let him that stole steal no more. Put away falsehood. Speak ye truth each one with one and, a, with one, one and the other. Why? Because you're members of a body. That's why. All this talk about being the temple of God. Truth! Don't lie. Don't speak falsehood. Now, falsehood covers a, a bigger thing than lie. You know, we, we, we can be false by just an impression we get. But just what we call white lies. Away with it, he says. You must be angry, he says, but don't sin. And he goes on and on and on all through these things. Look at the list of it. He says, now all this wonderful revelation, you can all have a part to pay. Don't just sit there moaning, saying, why, I feel useless and so on. There's plenty of things you can do. And so there are, for all kinds of things. Don't wait for people to come to you and say, will you do so and so and so and so. You do the things you can. Go out fishing. Come cleaning. Offer yourself a stewarding. All the practical things. Let God be seen in your life. And just hold back. Let this great truth be manifested in the most mundane and routine matters. And God will take note of it. For many a saint who has done no more than a few practical little jobs will one day be put in charge of great areas. We have a entirely false conception of the way God is trained. We think that unless we're doing something that is obviously spiritual, in quotes, 
Uh, God takes no note. He does. God takes note of every single thing. And if we are faithful in a little, he knows we can be faithful in much. And so he goes on. He talks about the family. He talks about work. He tells us that all this great truth is no good talking about it unless it's, it's manifested. How, he says, can you talk? Listen to his in chapter 5. See what he says. Well, it's extraordinary. If it wasn't the Lord and if it wasn't Scripture, I think we would almost be tempted to feel that perhaps the Apostle Paul was mad. Husbands, he says, love your wives. Wives, obey your husbands. And he relates it all to this great revelation. He said, just as Christ loved the church, you husbands love your wives. Just as the church is subject to Christ, you wives obey your husbands. Or someone says, you can talk. You don't know my wife. All right. I'll give you one example. You say, hmm, she's a real dragon. Mm, is she? You go away and read Hosea. Now, don't blame me. If you'd stayed like I am, you wouldn't have the trouble. <laughs> That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. You have married, and therefore you can't get out of it. Hosea. Some wife says to me, you don't know my husband. He's just impossible. You go away and read about Abigail. You see, it doesn't say if your husband's good, if your husband's spiritual, if your husband's doing the will of God. You, it says, obey your husband. For this great truth is manifested practical situation. It's the same in the, in the relationship of parents and children, children and parents. Now you say to me, you don't know anything about it. Right, right. But you can't get away from the word of God. It's right in that home that this tremendous truth of the fatherhood of God is to be manifested. It's right there in your home, in your relationship, in all our relationships, that these great truths are to be shown. If not, it's just so much theory. Now, we're not saying that we're all to live sort of exemplary type of lives. All the time. No, we are meant. That's the goal. But nor can we live in blatant contradiction to what we believe. If we do, we regard iniquity in our hearts and the Lord will not hear us. And that's why the Apostle Paul comes down to it all. He says, look here, you've got to face this. You've got to face it. These great truths are made good in practical circumstances and environment. And it's, it's the Lord's way. I'm, the Apostle Paul may have said, if we'd argued with him, he would have said, listen, I do know a little bit about it. I'm a prisoner. But I don't look upon myself like that. I look upon myself as the prisoner in the Lord. Can't you? Don't you see what happened to Hosea? His whole ministry, his place in the book, 
came out of his love for his wife. And the way he proved God. What about Abigail? Her place beside David came in the end through what God did in her because of the way she triumphed with Nabal. It is the same with children. Why, isn't it interesting in the, in, the, in the Old Testament how sometimes godly kings had the wickedest sons? We scratch our heads and wonder what went wrong. Well, this great letter ends with, a, with, with an understanding of this. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand. Who can stand? No one. But there is a position in him, in Christ. And there is an armor to be put on. And every one of us, the weakest of us, can win in this battle because the battle is already won. All we've got to do is to step into him and stand and put on the whole armor. What a calling. What a calling. So says the Apostle Paul, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. Oh, if only the truth of what we believe could be manifested in us as, a, as the church, in our life together, in our personal life, in our family life, and in our business life. Not that we become sort of stained glass window saints, unreal, removed from earth, but that we are flesh and blood in whom God is at work, doing something. That's what matters, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, how we praise thee that thou hast called us with such a calling. And how we praise thee, Lord, that in spite of the unyielding material that we are, thou dost not repent of that calling. Now, Lord, we pray together that we may be prepared for thee to really work out the truth of our calling in our everyday life. Our life together, our personal life, our family life, our business life. Lord, may in it all, may it be that thou thyself art seen. We commit everything to thee, Lord. Pray that thou hast covered all that's been said, blotting out anything that's wrong or untoward, and keeping in our hearts all that is of thyself. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. If you will turn to Ephesians once more, to Ephesians and chapter 4 and verse 1. The letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called.
walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. You will remember last week we surveyed um, the first three chapters of Ephesians very, very swiftly. And we said that this uh, verse in one sense is a key to this letter. Walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. Remember, we spoke about the circumstances of the letter. We spoke about the way it was written, the Apostle Paul in chains. And uh, we got a lesson from that for ourselves, that whatever circumstances may be ours, the Lord can greatly use us. We may think it's limitation. We may think it's restriction. We may feel that it's the end of our ministry, but not so with the Lord. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord. He looked upon that chain as something that was under the sovereignty of God. And therefore he accepted the restriction and the limitation. And far from being the end of his usefulness, far from being the end of his ministry, it became the greatest fulfillment of his ministry hitherto. And today we have the Ephesian letter, which in many ways is called the high watermark of the Bible. It was written at a time of great restriction, of great limitation at the end of the apostle's life. We, you will remember, divided this into two. Walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. The calling wherewith you were called. We found that in the first three chapters. And we looked through it from eternity to eternity. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then sealed with the spirit. Which is the earnest of the, the inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession unto the praise of his glory. From eternity to eternity, we find our calling. God has called us with an eternal calling. And what a glorious calling it is. It is to be part of Christ. It is to be members of Christ. It is to be the very bride of Christ. It is to be his body. That's our calling. And we looked at it in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, that we uh, were made alive together with Christ. We were raised together with Christ. We were made to sit together with Christ. And we're even to walk in works afore prepared. All that. When we went on, we found there was no more Jew, no more Gentile in this calling. It's been abolished in him. And now there is one new man. And this one new man is the temple of God. Not a temple made with human hands. Not a temple of bricks and mortar. But a temple made up of living stones. The redeemed of God. The elect of God. And this temple is growing into a a holy habitation, a home of God in the Spirit. And then in, in, in chapter 3, we found that the Apostle Paul really meant at the beginning of it uh, to come to an end. And he was just about, as it were, to end this little part of the letter and get on to some practical comments when he um, took another dive uh, into this great uh, inexhaustible subject. And he starts to talk about the mystery. And he says, you see, the whole 
thing is a mystery. It's the mystery of Christ. This glorious mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations until now. But God hath now revealed it to us. What is it, he says? That you and I are fellow members, fellow heirs of Christ, fellow members of the body. We are part of him. And then you remember last week we ended on that great escalation at the end of chapter 3 where he says first he starts to pray again. And he's already prayed once for us that we may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of, of, of God, the eyes of our heart being enlightened that we might know uh, these things. Now he prays again. And we have this tremendous escalation, this spiritual escalation as well. We may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. That's the first thing. The second thing, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded, that's only elementary. That's all elementary. Some of us have a lifetime in which God just starts to do this. But the, the Apostle Paul says, that's elementary. That's kindergarten. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which passeth all knowledge. What an escalation. What an escalation. No small salvation. No small gospel. Not just a question of uh, getting saved, making a decision, singing a few hymns, saying a few prayers, trying to be good, and one day going to heaven to play a harp forever after. No, nothing like that. He says that you may be rooted and grounded, that you may be strong to apprehend with all the saints you're just part of a great whole. You may be strong to comprehend, to apprehend, to, to, to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge beyond our intellect, but not beyond our spirit. Beyond our intellect, but not beyond our spirit. To know the love of Christ. And then the last step in the escalation, listen to it, that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God, an inexhaustible ocean. Not that God is filling you, but that you are filled in him. You're lost in him. He is so immense, so unsearchable. You're lost in him. Well, no wonder he says at the end of this, with great comfort, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Dare any of us have asked if it were not in the word of God such a thing? Why, none of us would dare to come before the Almighty, the Holy One, and dare to ask to be filled unto all the fullness of God. But the Apostle says, now unto him that is able, able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think how good it is that God does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. We often ask very little things, don't we? 
how good the Lord is, that he does uh, answers exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. Otherwise, what a poor state we would all be in if he only did what we asked. Sometimes how little it is. Or thought, sometimes some of our thoughts, especially spiritual, are very mean and very poor and very limited. How infinite the grace and the love of God that he answers us and does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. If you don't let the power work in you, you won't know the exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. So you'll be in a trap where you're, you're asking things and thinking things which never come true and which never work out in reality because you're checking the power that's working in you. It is according to the power that worketh in us. So we must not quench the Spirit. We must not grieve the Spirit. We must give honor to Him according to the power that worketh in us. Well, now, that's what we surveyed. Now, the, this morning, in the little time we have, let's look, uh, uh, take a bird's eye view on the last three chapters of uh, Ephesians. We only touched on it uh, last week. Now, here we've got the walking worthily. Walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. Here is the tremendous calling. Now, I don't care who you are, what you are, where you come from, or what your condition is. I can tell you this. If you are a child of God, you have been called with this calling. You may be the most inane, stupid, ignorant child of God in this world, but you've been called. For God is no respecter of persons. If you're saved, if you're a child of his, you've been called. Now, in precisely the same way, I don't care how inane I am, or stupid I am, or how inane you are, or stupid you are, how ignorant we are, you and I, if we have been called, are to walk worthily. There is no excuse. No one can bring up any excuse and say, I don't have to walk worthy. God is a God of grace. He saved me. I'm called. All I've got to do is, uh, after I've done something, confess it. And it's away with. You be careful. The Apostle Paul says, walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. If you're a child of God, you've been called. If you've been called, a tremendous responsibility is yours and mine. It is to walk worthily of the calling. And this is what the Apostle Paul comes, and, and you know, most of us forget this. So much of his letter is taken up with dealing with walking worthily. All this is not just sermon material. It's not just a nice sort of uh, 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 glorified uh, system of theology. Lovely theories, Christian fairy tales, idealism. 
The Apostle Paul spends at least half the letter taking all these tremendous things that represent our calling and saying, now this all has the most ordinary, mundane, and routine outworking. And so he starts, and the first thing he starts with, as we would think, is the church. And he says, now this is the key to the whole thing. Now he says, look, give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on, there is one body and one Spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling. And then he goes on, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Here is the unity of it all. Here is this glorious spiritual unity. Oh, my dear friend, what a wonderful thing it is to be a child of God and not to have any labels attached to us. What a sin it is to have a label attached to us. To be Baptists or Methodists or Pentecostals or, or whatever you have you. I don't know. I've never heard of some of the names. Sometimes I see peculiar this and particular that. It's most extraordinary. We seem to have got into a kind of strange habit of, 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 of feeling that we must, have, we must add some kind of label to us. No. But ne don't let us think that just because we haven't got a label, we are one. That we are giving diligence to keep the unity. Surely if we have seen what the church is, if we have seen the oneness of Jesus Christ, if we have seen what it is to belong to him, to be being prepared by his grace alone, and none of us can say whether finally we shall be in the bride, but by his grace we trust we shall be there in the city. And part of that bride that is his. Oh, my dear friend, if only all of us could give diligence to keep this, this, this that the Lord Jesus has died for, this that his precious blood has brought into being. Why, says the Apostle Paul, don't you forget this thing? These middle walls of petition were not just removed in an airy wave of God's hand. It cost the body and blood of Christ. He has destroyed the middle wall of petition. Let any man dare to build again the walls of petition between us believers. He's doing the devil's work. I always find, I've said it before, how tragic it is when we meet people and hear things like this. Well, there are walls between us, but let us not let them grow so high that we cannot go up a ladder and shake hands over the top. Heard it again and again in meetings of unity. What's the idea? What's the idea? And everyone commends. What a broad spirit, they say. How fine it is. After all, we're all different and we all see different. But, but we must all try to be. But my friend, what does the word of God say? The word of God says that the middle walls of petition have been destroyed. Shall any man build them? Shall any man rec recognize what Jesus Christ has died to destroy? Therefore, says the Apostle Paul, let those middle walls of petition, whatever they are, racial, national, social, or religious, let them go. They have been abolished by nothing less than the blood of the Lamb 
and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But what about the middle walls that exist between us as believers? Oh, how adept, how capable, how able we all are at building walls. Remember when I was a little boy seeing a picture of Sir Winston Churchill building a wall in his garden and it had underneath the caption Capable Wall Builder. You know, I think that could be well put under a lot of us. Capable wall builders of the wrong kind. Instead of being the walls of Jerusalem which we are rebuilding, they are the middle walls that divide us. How quick we are to believe the worst of one another. How quick we are to believe an insinuation. How quick we are to take up a suspicion. How quick we are to pass on a story. All of which helps the middle wall of petition. The Apostle Paul says, give diligence to keep, to maintain the unity. It's yours. You don't have to create it. It's yours. It's there. Now then, keep it. Maintain it. Give diligence to maintain it. And so he goes on to this wonderful um, uh, uh, message in the church, all this practical application of the church. He tells us that Christ has ascended on high. He's led captivity captive. He's distributed gifts among men. And now look at the gifts that he's given to the church. Here they are, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers why it's all there are you an apostle are you a prophet are you a pastor or a teacher are you an evangelist you say no no I'm not well then you're not there you say I'm not there I'm not there you are listen to this but speaking truth in love verse 15 verse 14 that we may be no longer children Verse 15, but grow up in all things, that, but speaking truth and love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth, according to the working in due measure of each several part, maketh the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. There we are. You see, all these great gifts are for one thing, to get the body working itself. That's all. These great gifts are not to take glory to themselves and to draw attention to themselves. These great gifts are to get you working so that you can build up your, uh, one another in your most holy faith. So that the whole body is making increase of itself in love. See? From within. How do we do that? How important it is. We have lived in a country which has known freedom for so many, many years and has been a bastion, bulwark of freedom. But how long have we really got? We don't know. When will the reign of Antichrist begin? When will the last dark days of this age be brought in just before the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? When? Well, I don't know. But you know, we have all got to get into the way where we can build one another up anywhere. So that if the day comes when this place becomes an indoctrination center for some other kind of creed or ideology, we can all meet wherever we are, in kitchens, in, in um, outhouses, in, in, uh, behind a hedge, here, there, and everywhere, and can just quietly build one another up. 
if we've got too used to, to uh, the big gifts, we shall be lost when that day comes. But thank God for uh, a preparation of the Spirit like this. Why, if the Apostle Paul wrote this, within a decade or two, these dear believers were in catacombs. They were in caves. They were persecuted from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, and they survived because they knew how to build one another up in their most holy faith. Now, the Apostle Paul goes straight on from there to, to personal life, from, from the church to personal life. Now, that's quite right, because, you see, we put the church first, personal life. There can't be real church life without personal life. If you are not personally true, you cannot think that you're helping to build the church. If there is not truth in our inward part, we can't expect to see the church uh, being built up. And so, so the Apostle Paul goes straight on in from verse 17. And he says some very strange things when you think about it. You think these things wouldn't need saying to Christians. Uh, I, uh, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye no longer walk as the Gentiles. Uh, that ye uh, walk in the vanity of their mind uh, and so on who being past feeling gave themselves up to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. And, and so he goes on. Now there are some very, very interesting things that the Apostle Paul says here. He says, put away falsehood. When you're angry, don't sin. Don't go to bed with your anger and well, shall we say, without sorting out what's been the cause of your anger. In other words, don't go to bed without apologizing if you've lost your temper. Don't steal. Now, would you think that was necessary to say that to Christians? Don't steal. Let him that stole steal no more. But you know it is. Do you know, this is the whole point. We have such a capacity for accepting theology without practice. We can accept things, we can accept so much, and then we can just go out and do the exact opposite. And so the Apostle Paul goes through all the... the first one, let no bad language come out of your mouth. That's putting it in a modern way. Let no corrupt speech proceed. Let no bad language come out of your mouth. Why? Because it grieves the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, if you're part of this temple which is being built for God as his home, can bad language come out of your mouth? Can these things be so? Why does he say put away falsehood? Because he says you're members of one body. Here the Apostle Paul takes all these tremendous things in the first three chapters and he relates them. He says you mustn't indulge in any kind of falsehood because you're members of the body. That's why. And so he goes on. Uh, you see, be therefore, chapter 5. Be therefore imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love even as Christ also loved you. Walk in love as Christ also loved you. Goes right back to chapter 1 
where we are told that God in his great love chose us in him before the foundation of the world and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in order uh, to save us. And so it goes on about subjects we would hardly have thought were, were required. Immorality, fornication, impurity, uncleanness, covetousness, which brings so much jealousy, filthiness of mind, foolish talking, foolish talking, jesting, which are not convenient. In the modern version, you will see that that's put down as to flippant talk about divine things. Flippant talk about divine things. So, be not, verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with men. Have no fellowship, verse 11, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. Verse 15, look therefore carefully how ye walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. All this in these first three chapters about the calling wherewith you are called. Understand it. And let it have by the Spirit of God a practical influence and effect upon your day-to-day -day life. If you got drunk, don't get drunk again. Why? Because you're part of the temple of God. If you are a thief, don't steal anymore. Work with your own hands. That's why you stole. You wanted something quickly for nothing. So work with your own hands and do your work properly. Earn your own wages and stand on your own feet. And don't cadge from others. Because you are the temple of God. You are members one of another. Every time you steal, you abuse another. You can't do that anymore. Because those others, even when you cadge, they're members of the one body. If you took drugs, don't do it anymore. And so you can go, if you are immoral, don't be immoral again. Why? Because of this calling wherewith we were called. Isn't that tremendous? And he says, well, now, look, don't just let this be a lot of do's and don'ts. You mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't. Remember the calling. That's why you're delivered from all this. Put off these things and put on the new man. See, that's going back to chapter 4 and verse uh, 22, 23, and 24. See, see, so put off the old man with his former ways and character. And you put on the new man, which is Jesus Christ. Now, this all won't, all won't happen in a moment. But the fact is, you must not make excuses for yourself. You have got to understand that truth means nothing unless it has a concrete expression, a practical outworking. Let no man think that uh, he can just get away on this. 
You can't. The Lord Jesus himself said, By their fruits ye shall know them. Not by their leaves. By their fruit ye shall know them. That is the unfailing way that we know a true child of God. Not just by their profession. If a person professes to believe it, we, to, to be a child of God, we have to accept that. But it is by the fruit in their life that we know whether they're truly child of God or not. For truth must work out in our lives. And isn't that true? That every time we see something, it has a practical effect on us, when we really see truth. Isn't it true what the Lord Jesus said, the truth shall make you free? And if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Truth frees us. You know, we can, uh, we can wander in a morass. We can be in a bog. Until suddenly the truth dawns on us. But sometimes about ourselves. And it delivers us. Why, I spoke a little while ago about Jacob. The poor man didn't know himself. He didn't know he was a twister. A supplanter, a deceiver. Suddenly the truth came and he was free. Free? He gathered up his garments, packed his luggage, popped his two wives on camels, and he was out. He was free. He was free. Because the truth had made him free. Why should he stay in a foreign land, being deceived by his uh, wicked uncle? And know that he himself was just as bad. He fled. He was free. Now, he wasn't changed, but the truth of freedom, it made him do something. And then the angel of God's presence met him, and he became Israel. Truth. Then it says in verse 18, don't be drunk with wine. There you are, there's the word. It's all here. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why are people afraid of being filled with the Spirit. There wasn't a single person in an early church that wasn't chosen for a task that wasn't filled with the Spirit. That was the qualification. Sometimes they changed the second one. Sometimes it was full of faith. Sometimes it was full of wisdom. But it was always full of the Spirit. They chose them out, men full of the Spirit. And then it says, oh, so, so, filled with the Spirit, he stood up. It doesn't mean, as some people sometimes think, that being filled with the Spirit means that someone stands up and, and they're obviously conscious that they're filled. But the Apostle Paul explains it to us when he says, I was amongst you in great fear and much trembling. But my preaching was not in the persuasive words of men, but in demonstration of power and of the Holy Ghost. Think of that. There he was with his knees knocking and trembling. And yet when he spoke, the word had tremendous effect. That's truly being filled with the Spirit. Otherwise you're looking for some kind of spiritual drug on which you're going to escape everything. You won't get it. But you must be filled with the Spirit. You must be filled with the Spirit. Let all this idea of, of, of it not being necessary, or I was when I was saved to begin with, let it be done away. It's foolish talk. Even if you were filled on the day you were saved, my dear friend, you need a daily filling 
And the people who say they don't are the people, it is most apparent that they do. This is the tragedy of it. See, the truth hasn't made them free. When the truth dawns on you, you're free to admit where you stand. What is your name, Jacob? Not what is your name, Abraham. I'm Abraham's son. No, what is your name? Jacob. Twister, deceiver. All right, all right. You'll be no more Jacob, you'll be Israel. That's truth. Be filled with the Spirit. You see what it says? Where, uh, 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 be filled with the Spirit. Now what, is, what, what does the, the Apostle Paul say about our great calling? What does he say? Listen to this. Now listen to it. Ephesians 1 verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. How can you get away from that? How can you get away from that? Filleth all in all. Is there a single one of you who can get out of that? All in all. Everyone. He fills everyone. Has he filled you? Who fills you? Oh, you should suppose God. No. Christ fills you with the Spirit. People talk about the baptism of the Spirit. There's no such phrase in Scripture. But there is this phrase, He who baptizes with the Spirit. It's He. You get that. And you'll be filled. When you see the Lord as the one who's obtained the promise of the Spirit, then immediately you know there's an everlasting supply. He's obtained the promise for you and for me and poured him forth. You see? Be filled. How are you filled? Well, how do you fill an empty bucket? How do you fill an empty cup? How do you fill an empty bag? You take, you take the supply and you take the emptiness and you stuff the supply into the emptiness. Don't you? You take a cup, you put it under the tap and you turn on the tap. You take a cup and you put it under the teapot and pour out the contents. Not all, but I mean till the cup is full. That's how you do it. You take a bag, uh, uh, a cushion that's not got feathers in it. You take the feathers and you put the feathers into the cushion. Isn't that how you do it? Be filled. Where is this everlasting supply? The supply of the Spirit of Jesus. It is in Him. In Him. And when we come to him, it's there. And all we have to do is to find the secret and say, Lord, I take what I need today. Now, if there's sin, there'll be a blockage. If there is unbelief, there will be a blockage. But where there is faith, you can take and take and take. And then you can know what it says in the rest of that chapter. Listen to it, speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. May singing and making melody with your heart. Uh, to the Lord. Not of all, all of us can do it with our voices, but we can with our heart to the Lord. We can make melody with our heart. Giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord. That's the outcome of being filled with the Spirit. Not big idea. It's that you can give thanks in all things. And just one other little thing. You can be subject one to another. 
How different sometimes are the outcome of being filled with the Spirit to what we imagine. When we're filled with the Spirit, it just means that we can be subject to others. We can subject ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Well, then the Apostle Paul goes on, but I'm afraid our time has gone. Uh, once more, he goes on about families, and he goes on about work. And he takes all these practical things, which after all are part and parcel of our life, are they not? Isn't it just here in our families? Parents and children, children and parents, husbands and wives, wives and husbands, that all the rub comes? Isn't it just here that really all this calling is either going to be made real or fail? And in our work, some of us who are unmarried may be getting out of all this, but you won't. The Lord will see to it that uh, either the people you're living with or sharing a flat with or a home with will get you down no end. Or in your office at work, your employer, you'll have come up against it there because the Lord is going to make this matter of truth real. The truth as it is in Jesus. That's in chapter 4, verse 21. The truth as it is in Jesus. He's going to make it real going to make it real. And if you aren't filled with the Spirit, oh my, then the problems and circumstances, situations of life are just going to get on top of you. <coughs> but if you know what it is to be filled, now this being filled with the Spirit, it's to do with his body. By one Spirit are we all baptized into the one body. And all made to drink of the one Spirit. Are you drinking? Not have you drunk, but are you drinking? And then again, filled unto all the fullness of God. How can you be lost in the fullness of God? By being filled yourself. And not then saying, look at me, I'm filled. I can give you the date and the time. But ah, my Lord is so tremendous. My Lord is so tremendous. He's, he's enveloped me. He's become so much greater. I've seen a little of his greatness. Now I'm small and he's great. I've begun to decrease. He's begun to increase. What does it mean when it says, Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord? That's the thing we overlook. As unto the Lord. Oh, if only the Apostle Paul hadn't put that in. If he'd only put wives be subject to husbands, we could all get out of it, couldn't we? But as unto the Lord. In other words, the Lord says, every time you're not subject, that's me you're not being subject to. Do you know that? So don't go around saying, I feel this, I feel that. You're not being subject to me. This great calling, this great calling, it's founded in this. And then he goes on and he says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. So then he says to those who are husbands, It's no good going around talking about the love of God and going out to the streets and fishing everyone in. This calling's founded in your own home. For you are to love even as I loved you. 
Oh, the Apostle Paul. Our children obey your parents and fathers. Don't provoke your children. Oh dear, it's all. Does it bring you under condemnation? Why should it bring you under condemnation? Aren't we all in the same boat? What about this matter of employers? Some Christians, it seems to me, can go to work, spend half an hour witnessing to various people in the office, and arrive almost every day uh, late. Isn't that extraordinary? They take the cash on time, the wages, their wages. But it doesn't matter about time. Oh, and they're Christians, and everyone else in the office unsaved, so sad, so sad, but I'm doing my best to get them saved, but the Lord says, just wait, just wait, who's employing you, who is employing, or you say, Mr. Goldstucker, no, Mr. Goldstucker is not employing you, the Lord says, I am employing through Mr. Goldstucker. Now just you remember that I have guaranteed to give you certain things if you are there and you work such and such a time. And you're responsible. And you don't do the job because of Mr. Goldstucker because I well understand what you feel about Mr. Goldstucker. But you don't do it as a men-pleaser trying to please only Mr. Goldstone. You do it as unto me. And then do you know what the Lord says? I will reward you. Now that's going to be a bit of a shock one day. We know we've passed from condemnation, from damnation unto life, but we're all going to give account of ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ. You know there are going to be some very strange questions asked there when the Lord says, Now, I employed you through Mr. Goldstuker, but you know every single day for years you were ten minutes, quarter of an hour, half an hour late. What have you got to say to that? Oh, well, Lord, you know I made up for it, didn't I? I spent an hour at least trying to convert them all in the office every day during Mr. Goldstuker's time. <laughs> What's the Lord going to say to it? What's he going to say to it? No reward. But here is some little believer who has faithfully done their job. Really faithfully done their And the Lord says, you know, you know that Mr. Goldstucker. <laughs> Do sincerely apologise to the listener at this point, but the master reel-to-reel tape recording made of this session in 1968 ran out at this time. Lance, we understand, continued for a further three minutes before the end of the talk. Hope it doesn't spoil the listening to you. Thank you.